This is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mayor Culpa Podcast. Memorial Day, a time to reflect with friends and family, is also the unofficial beginning of summer. But there were 16 mass shootings over Memorial Day weekend. And I'll say it again, 16 mass shootings. And yet, Republican members of Congress and the conservative majority of the Supreme Court say it's constitutionally impossible to stop the mass murder of our children and everyone else because the Second Amendment says so. I I just have to say respectfully that there is a way for us to have common sense gun laws. There is a way for us to make sure that lawful, responsible gun owners like yourself are able to use it for sporting, hunting, protecting yourself. But the only way we're gonna do that is if we don't have a situation in which anything that is proposed is viewed as some tyrannical destruction of the Second Amendment. The Second Amendment is why we can't go to pretty much anywhere without the fear of getting shot to death. The Second Amendment is why you can't be immediately arrested for openly carrying around an assault rifle into a Walmart, and why you can't be immediately arrested for smuggling a hand cannon in your boxer shorts to the gym. The Second Amendment is how law enforcement justifies the need for military-grade armaments to, of course, match the firepower they meet in the streets. The Second Amendment protects fucking idiots who shoot wolves from helicopters with machine guns. The Second Amendment is why our kids are scared to go to school, and it's way past time for the Second Amendment to be replaced or certainly repealed. We're back watching CNN. I'm Brooke Baldwin. Uh, A stunning call to repeal the Second Amendment is perhaps the most radical proposition in the gun debate. So to hear it from a retired Supreme Court court justice is simply quite stunning. In an opinion piece penned for the New York Times, John Paul Stevens writes that a constitutional amendment to, quote, get rid of the Second Amendment, uh, quoting him, would do more to weaken the NRA's ability to stymie legislative debate and block constructive gun control legislation than any other available options. In the meantime, there's Uvalde, Texas, the scene of a mass murder of children and their teachers so heinous that the entire country is struggling to wrap their collective head around it. Made only worse by a completely inept police force and lying, scheming politicians who refused to tell us the truth about the incident. How and why was the response to that particular Texas mass murder a complete and utter clusterfuck? And yet, the cowardly chief of police in Uvalde has been sneaking around town, dodging the press, but somehow manages to get sworn into the city council on Tuesday. On Wednesday morning, a CNN reporter camped outside a school district office confronted Chief Pedro Arredondo as he exited his car, asking, how can you explain yourself? We're not going to release anything. We have, we have people in our community being buried, so, so right, we're going to be respectful. I, I just want your reaction we're gonna, we're gonna, to we're gonna be, the director gonna, McGraw gonna, saying gonna, that you were responsible for the decision right, we're to gonna go be, into that room. How do you explain gonna yourself be, to we're the We're going to be respectful to the family. I understand and, that, but and, you have an opportunity oh, and sure, and we're, to explain and we're gonna, yourself to the parents. And just so you know, we're going we're gonna to do that eventually, obviously. When? And whenever this is done, and let the families quit grieving, then we'll do that, obviously. He said when the family stop grieving, they're never going to stop grieving, and it demeans the families to put the truth off indefinitely. 
But Police Chief Arredondo hasn't publicly answered questions in days, not from the Texas Rangers, the FBI, or even the White House. Do something. That's what people on the streets of Uvalde chanted during the president's grim visit to the shell-shocked city over the weekend. They booed as Governor Greg Abbott toured the scene of the crime, robbed elementary school, and placed flowers at a makeshift memorial. Our children don't deserve this! Ben Gonzalez was the one shouting. He grew up here. He says he hates this happened in the city he loves, but hopes something will come from the pain and the anger. I, I'm not a gun activist or I'm not against guns completely. I own a, a firearm to protect my home. But no one should expect the most gun-loving governor in the country to help. Abbott and his cronies are actively engaged in a cover-up and have been since the day of the massacre. Mounting questions over the decision to not fully engage the attacker earlier, allowing him to remain barricaded inside a pair of classrooms for more than an hour, has prompted the Justice Department to move in early this week. Their initial critical incident review has found gross negligence and proof that Abbott and Texas State Police have been spouting misleading information since their first press conference. Abbott saying it would have been worse if police didn't do what they did is now laughable. ABC News came across video and audio of children calling for help from inside the classroom that a dispatcher relayed to the police on the scene, who did absolutely fucking nothing but try and restrain parents from rushing inside to save their kids. Uh, listen, I'm not a police officer and I'm certainly not an expert in these types of things, but it seems like there was a tremendous amount of failure. To put it on one local cop is just... It's beyond me. I was misled, said Abbott at another press conference. I am livid about what happened. But for the most part, Texas Republicans have tried to change the subject. Ted Cruz, in an effort to take the heat off of law enforcement, pathetically tried placing blame on a teacher, claiming that the shooter had entered through a door that the teacher had left propped open. Recordings have surfaced which prove that the teacher closed and locked the door while on the phone with 911 dispatchers. But Texas politicians only want to focus on the minutia and ignore the bigger picture, the timeline of events, and who, if anyone, will be held accountable for the piss-poor response by law enforcement at the scene. As I'm reporting this, no one has been fired and no one has resigned, which is standard police procedure when an investigation goes this far off the rails. But apparently, shame is dead in Texas, too. Ms. Garcia, my teacher, she told us we were going to go in a quick lockdown. So my friend, he got up and he turned off the TV because that's what we had to do. And right when she went out to find the key and lock the door from the outside, we heard gunshots. She says as her teacher tried to close the door, the gunman grabbed it and forced his way in. And she started guarding us. But one thing is for sure, good guys with guns are just as terrified of assault weapons as the rest of us. But there's no excuse for not going in and trying to save those kids. Fact is, the bad guys with guns, completely unchecked and unregulated by our government, have exposed the disgusting truth about the Republican Party. They would rather sacrifice our children than enact safe gun laws or lose the MAGA vote. And no one loves the Second Amendment like the MAGAs. 
And now that Trumpism and the big lie have totally taken hold in red states, Republicans have started to see white supremacists not as the enemy, but as their salvation. I mean, simply put, without their vote, Republicans won't win elections. And we have to get this passed. It's passed the House, it's sitting in the Senate. You need to be calling your senator and making sure that we get enough Democrats that this bill passes. Because what this bill does is, and it doesn't just look at white supremacy or white terrorism, domestic terrorism. It looks at domestic terrorism overall, and it tracks it. It forms groups within the DOJ, the FBI, and Homeland Security to specifically look at the infiltration of the armed services and police forces by domestic terrorists whether they're white terrorists, black terrorists, whatever their motivation is. It looks at the infiltration and recruitment from those groups. But more importantly, what it does is it forces them to report annually to Congress, which means this will be documented. There will be a database for this information for the first time. Last week, Senate Republicans blocked the Domestic Terrorism Prevention Act because it would have targeted white hate groups by creating an interagency task force to combat the rise of conspiracy-driven domestic terrorists and white nationalists infiltrating the military and police. Democratic Senator Chris Murphy, whose home state suffered the Sandy Hook Elementary School massacre a decade ago, argued that it's an inoffensive, apolitical piece of legislation that just seeks to be more coordinated in taking down violent white supremacists. I mean, if we can't find consensus on fighting white supremacists, what can we find consensus on? Well, good question, and probably not gun safety. And Jerry Nadler was on the House floor and he was talking about white supremacy and he was bringing up the terrible shooting that happened in New York, but totally ignoring the shooting that happened in California um, that I think involved an Asian man that was a shooter, totally ignoring the guy that drove his car, um, black man that drove his car through a Christmas parade, killing people and was a racist himself completely ignoring ignoring the black man that did the New York subway shooting. You know, these people are all guilty of these crimes and it's not about race. It, it shouldn't be about race, um, but they're clearly racist as well. I think things have gotten so bad that everyone is getting more rational about it, Biden said. At least that's my hope. Well, mine too, but that and five cents will get you absolutely fucking nothing. Biden is perhaps remembering a time before McConnell completely obliterated the Senate. The president called on rational Republicans, McConnell and Senator John Cornyn of Texas, to get the ball rolling. But history tells us that McConnell will never move forward on gun safety because it doesn't go with the GOP narrative that red states and white Christians everywhere are under siege by racial minorities, by trans people, by gay people, and women, of course. So you need your guns and assault weapons to fend off all these terrible threats. McConnell won't give up the narrative because it gets votes. White supremacy is still at the heart of all the GOP is doing to obstruct common sense anything. If you were to assemble a list, a hierarchy of concerns or problems this country faces, where would white supremacy be on the list? Right up there with Russia, probably. 
It's actually not a real problem in America. The combined membership of every white supremacist organization in this country would be able to fit inside a college football stadium? White supremacy, that's the problem. This is a hoax. Just like the Russia hoax. It's a conspiracy theory used to divide the country and keep a hold on power. That's exactly what's going on. But it looks like Democrats are going to give it the old college try anyway and work with Republicans on the Protecting Our Kids Act. Eight pieces of gun control legislation that will be packaged together and moved to the House floor for a vote next week. On the table are red flag laws, extension of background checks, safe storage measures, and mental health expansion, even though only about 25% of shooters have a previous history of mental health issues. Republicans love to blame gun violence on anything but guns. Also up for discussion is banning assault weapons, which Democrats don't have the votes to pass, but that Biden keeps pushing anyway, pointing out in a recent press conference that once Clinton's 1994 assault weapon ban expired, incidents of killings with AR-15s tripled. All this just as New Zealand's Prime Minister, Jacinda Ardern, visited the White House. Ardern had basically put an end to gun violence in her country after the Christchurch massacre in 2019, where a gunman killed 51 Muslims. Ardern then delivered a ban on semi-automatic firearms and other safe gun laws within weeks. But then again, she didn't have McConnell in the NRA to contend with. Wondering if you have, if you could explain to us how you did it, why New Zealand was able to do that when we can't pass so much as universal background checks for people mm. with history of mental illness mm. or violent behavior, even though 91% of Americans approve that, want that, on, on both sides of the aisle. How did you get that done, or how did you New Zealanders get that done? Because I know it was, it was general consensus. Well, I can, I can only speak to our experience in New Zealand, but you know, when I watch from afar and see events such as those today, I think of them not as a politician, I see them just as a mother, and I'm so sorry for what has happened here. And then I think about what, what happened to us, and all I can reflect is we are, we are a very pragmatic people. When we saw something like that happen, everyone said never again. And so then it was incumbent on us as politicians to respond to that. Now, we have legitimate needs for guns in our country for things like pest control and to protect our biodiversity but you don't need a military-style semi-automatic weapon to do that. And so we got rid of them. No matter what the Protecting Our Kids Act proposes, when it comes down to a vote in the Senate, they'll need support from at least 10 Republicans to overcome a filibuster. And pro-gun groups have already criticized the bipartisan efforts, calling them the most serious assault on our Second Amendment rights we've ever seen in a fundraising email to supporters this week. Let's go back now to the breaking news out of Oklahoma. Reports of yet another possible mass shooting, this time at a hospital in Tulsa. Gun violence and abortion will be on the ballot this November, but so will inflation. However, if Democrats can prove their case to the public that the GOP supports gun violence by opposing safe gun laws, we may still have a shot to keep the House and the Senate. And now for the main event.
Today we welcome back to Maya Culpa, best-selling author, CNN senior legal analyst, and former federal and state prosecutor, Ellie Honig. You may also know him from his popular podcast, Up Against the Mob and or Cafe Brief. As a New Jersey federal prosecutor, Honig directed major criminal cases against street gangs, arms dealers, and even a few corrupt politicians. He was also an assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, where he successfully prosecuted more than 100 members of La Cosa Nostra, including bosses and other high-ranking members of the Gambino and Genovese organized crime families. And now Honig leverages all that prosecutorial experience to keep the public informed and his fodder for his latest book due out soon, entitled Hatchet Man, How Bill Barr Broke the Prosecutor's Code and Corrupted the Justice Department. Interested? Sure you are. So let's go now to that conversation. Okay, so Ellie. So we know that you're on to Bill Barr, all right? That's what your new book, Hatchet Man, is all about. Now he's on a rehab tour. This, as far as I'm concerned, it's a fucking bullshit rehab tour. And says that he's going to cooperate with the January 6th committee. So here comes my side comment. Wow, isn't that special of him, right? Except the fact that he fails to mention that he backed the big lie for all this time, really for a long, long time. Do you believe anything that Bill Barr is selling? So Michael, you, you hit the nail on the head. And, and when you say, do I believe anything he's selling? I believe some of it, but what Bill Barr does really masterfully, dishonestly, is he always gives us part of the truth, but not the whole truth. He gives us the part he likes, he leaves out the part he doesn't. And what you hit on is exactly my big criticism of Bill Barr when it comes to the big lie. Bill Barr wants us all to remember. He writes about it in his book. He go, he did a whole national TV tour where he constantly mentioned the fact that after the election, three weeks after the election, when he was still attorney general, he came forward and said, we DOJ have found no evidence of widespread voter fraud. He did do that. That's for sure. What he's leaving out and he wants a race from the historical record, but I do not leave out of my book, is the fact that for months leading up to the election, he was one of the biggest proponents. He fanned the flames of the big lie, and he did it as attorney general. He did an interview on NPR where he talked about this massive risk, counterfeit ballots. It was so bad that poor NPR, God bless their souls, had to run a correction article entitled, NPR let the attorney general tell a falsehood on our air. He went in front of Congress and said, oh, there's all this threat of fraud. When he was asked, do you have any evidence? He said, no, but I have common sense. He went on CNN. Uh, where I'm a contributor with Wolf Blitzer. And he said, we have this case involving 1,700 fake ballots. Turned out that case involved one fake ballot, one single fake ballot. And uh, and DOJ had to issue a correction of their own attorney general after the fact. They blamed it on some low-level staffer. So you're exactly right. Bill Barr is as dishonest as the day is long. He's trying to change history now after the fact. In my view, it's too late. Yeah, I agree with you. What I would like to see Bill Barr do is, okay, we all know the big lie is just that. It's a big fucking lie. However, one of the things I personally would like to see is Bill Barr step up to the plate and own the other things that we know that he was involved with on behalf of Donald as his fixer. And of course, yeah. I know this because I was the fixer before <laughs> Bill Barr. So I know exactly how Donald works and I know exactly how Bill Barr was thinking. I would love to know whether or not Bill Barr 
was directed by Donald, which is what my next book, Department of Injustice, is going to be about, a forensic dissection of my entire case, something that you're actually quoted in the book as well. And what I really like to know is what did Donald tell him to do, whether it was for the original case or for the unconstitutional remand. You see, Bill Barr is involved in so much more than just the big lie. And most people, even if you're Republican, even if you're a Trump supporter, they still know that it's bullshit, that the voting machines are not, you know, we're not rigged and we're not being, um, you know, controlled by Venezuela uh, and so on. I mean, they all know that it's just Donald being fucking weird, which is what he is, right? That's really what it's all about. But I'd like to know the other things that Trump told him to do. What he's done so far, as far as I'm, conso- as far as I'm concerned, it's, um, it falls real short of what the American people want to hear yeah, and what I, we're entitled to know. I think Bill Barr has an awful lot of explaining to do about his tenure. I have something like 15 chapters in my book, and the election part of it is one of those 15. And what's really remarkable to me, Michael, is Even after the fact, Bill Barr has admitted some things that or we've learned more. And this is in the paperback, which is out new, um, that really prove my thesis and then some. I mean, it turns out it's actually worse than we knew. I'll give you a couple quick examples. One of my main criticisms of Bill Barr is that he politicized DOJ and he politicized his job as attorney general. And I say he did a whole bunch of political errands for Donald Trump. Well, he denies it. He denies it. And I give all sorts of examples in the book. But then he reveals in his own book, in his own book, that after Robert Mueller was done testifying in July of 2019, and it was pretty clear at that point no one was going to get indicted and the Mueller investigation had largely fizzled out. What did Bill Barr do? According to him, nobody knew this. He had a champagne party in his office. To what? Why do you have champagne? To celebrate. And then Savannah Guthrie actually asked him about that on NBC and said, doesn't that sort of indicate that you are you you were being a bit political? And Barr said, well, I don't, I don't see what's political about that. I mean, you know, the other thing is Bill Barr always tried to keep up this uh, veneer of the sort of grumpy old guy who's too old for this crap and doesn't care what people think about him. And he's just going to do what he thinks is right. B.S. Because we know that because of a lot of things. But even since my book came out, since he left office, we have gotten a whole bunch of texts that have been released. The judge ordered uh, DOJ to release a bunch of Bill Barr's texts. The man is incredibly vain, incredibly conscious of his own self-image. He's always monitoring TV. Who's saying what? Hoping for retweets. There's one point where he he uh, something somebody tweeted something positive about him, and he's um, sort of texting with his PIO, his press and uh, public information officer, saying, I'm hoping for more retweets. So he is really, uh, he, he puts a facade out there that I think is consistent with just how dishonest he was in his handling of the AG's job. Yeah, dishonest. It's, again, it just goes to show you, and it's part of the book that I'm going to be releasing soon, just how dangerous it is when you have a president or you have an individual like Donald Trump who has the ability to not just weaponize the Justice Department, but to make its attorney general your lackey, because that's what he did. And, you know, the funny thing is, 
As much as I hate to see the way Bill Barr acted and so on, I could understand why Donald Trump would want it that way. Personally, I'd like to see a little more Bill Barr and Merrick Garland. I'd like to see him start acting um, a little bit more distanced from, you know, doing what they want to call the right thing. You know, I can't get I can't get past. Bill Barr. I just can't get past him until he finally comes clean. Not just, again, on the big lie. Again, you know, and I I repeat it so often, I actually hate even hearing the words. We all know that Trump's big lie is nothing but that, a big lie. We know that the election was stolen. Now, every now and then you get a comedian like a David Pakman or, you know, um, some of these other guys that will go out there and have these conversations with these lunatic Trump supporters. They're really few and far between. They are fun to watch because they're just so stupid. But at the end of the day, there's so many other things that Bill Barr has to answer for. Like, I would like to know about phone calls with Russia that Bill Barr may have knowledge of. I'd like to know about my case, the unconstitutional remand of a U.S. citizen back to prison because I refused to waive my First Amendment constitutional right. I'd like to know more about Bill Barr's knowledge about the January 6th insurrection. I'd like to know so many other things that I think are so much more important than what we already know, right? I mean, just at some point in time, we're just beating a dead horse. And in his case, just a fat cow. Oh, jeez. Um, I don't I don't believe that Bill Barr knew specifically that January 6th was going to happen. I believe he it's clear that he was at a certain point belatedly uncomfortable with the spreading of the big lie. And and, and I would assume fearful of what might happen next. Um, I do think he has a lot of questions to answer. You know, I'm curious that with your case, Michael, what your prosecution was over before Bill Barr became attorney general. But. Then there's what you, you you referenced, which is when you were remanded, when you had they asked you to sign this form saying you would not talk about your book. Right. And they threw you back in prison for three weeks. I think it was at the time I said, I think I wrote about that. I'd never seen anything like that. That is not a standard question. It's not a standard form, Ellie, you right. know, as something that people don't realize. And you do. Yeah, I don't know whether it links to Barr, but but it, it was clearly an abuse of power by DOJ. There's no doubt presence. in my mind. There's no doubt in my mind that Bill Barr actually wrote that and had knowledge of that going forward. There's no doubt in my mind. Uh, however, you know, as you know very well, all federal forms have identifying numbers yeah. to them, right? The FI one two three four exactly. All right, they all have specific numbers. The document that was given to me to sign had no numbers. It looked like it was just printed. Just It was just printed off of the a, M- the, a word. The MC 101, the Michael Cohen 101. Ex- ex- yeah. ex- exactly. <laughs> so that's really what I would like to see. I know you have a lawsuit about this. And if you can prove that, that would be remarkable. I mean, again, there's no known proof that Bill Barr had anything to do with this. But you will get into discovery and, and beyond, and maybe you'll be able to prove something like that. We'll see. Well, look, I think it's not just proving it for the sake of myself uh, and the case. This goes way past Michael Cohen. This is, this is the quintessential and prime example of what happens, again, when you have a president 
who really doesn't want to be a president, but he wants to be your dictator, right? Your supreme leader. He wants to be your autocrat, your monarch, etc. Um, that's really what happens. And again, like, look, we're not we're not in disagreement uh, over here as it relates to Bill Barr. Bill no. Barr has a lot to answer for, and the way he's supposed to answer those questions is not in a book. Right. With an advance. It's not in a book. It's supposed yeah. to be before the American people, before a committee. So let me then ask you this next question here, Ellie. Can you give us some insights about Barr that you explore in your book? I mean, you know, obviously we're, we're doing like 1.3 million downloads now, you know, on Maya Culpa. We're really turning Maya Culpa into a movement. And I would like people to understand what your book is all about. Yeah. Was he always, you know, the duplicitous fucking jerk off that he is now? Or is there any truth to the rumors about, you know, his Epstein connection? Now, and I'm we're gonna talk about this in a second. Also, right, he killed a whole bunch of death row inmates in a short time that he worked for Trump. Overall, just give me your impression. What's your take on Bill Barr's character? Or should I say his lack of character? It's funny you put it that way, Michael, because I have I have three basically fundamental criticisms of Bill Barr. They've all been proven out. But you're actually the second time I've ever anybody of all the interviews I've done about this book that anyone's ever asked me. Somebody asked me, I, I think on on uh, I forget one of the networks and said, do you think Bill Barr has a character flaw? And I said, I thought about it for a second because I don't like to usually frame things in terms of the personal. And I said, yeah, I do. Of course I do. The man's a liar and he abused his power. So, look, number one, he's a liar. I call him that four letter word in my book. And I, I will tell you, Michael, I debated that really uh, back and forth constantly. I probably wrote and deleted the word 20 different times, but I went with it. And you know, Michael, in the law and in media, we are very hesitant, I think healthily so, to call someone a liar. We say, well, he misrepresented the facts or he was wrong on this. The man lied to us so many times over, starting with the Mueller report, uh, all the way up through the big lie, and many times in between, even about silly little things he lied to us. Um, and I and to do that as attorney general is utterly unforgivable. And I do think says something about the man's uh, morality and, and personal character. Um, he was a political partisan to the extreme, as you and I have already discussed, uh, the pardons or excuse me, the, the bailing out, the attempts to help Roger Stone and Michael Flynn, um, the giving Donald Trump campaign advice which he did. He, he has admitted after the fact he gave Donald Trump advice on how you have to appeal to voters, the throwing of a champagne party. There's many other examples. But here's the thing that I found that I found really interesting and satisfying since my book came out. One of the last chapters is, is essentially why people ask, why would Bill Barr do this? This was a man when he took the job as AG. He was in his late 60s. He had tons of money. He, had, he was worth 40 million dollars, according to Fortune magazine. Um, he had been attorney general. 91 to 93 under George H.W. Bush. What would he have done this for? And we sort of look back through Bill Barr's um, speeches and things that he had written throughout the past several decades. And we found all of these documents from the 90s and, and, and after that, that basically led me to say, Bill Barr is a culture warrior. He is a believer in the struggle between religiosity on the one hand, that's the side he's on, and a secular government, a non-religious government on the other hand. And he wrote and said some alarming things. Look, if you want to be religious, God bless, no pun intended, God bless. I, I, you know, be as religious as you'd like. That's fine. That's a good thing. But to turn the attorney general's office and DOJ into a, a vehicle for a religious crusade 
is a very different thing. And his view was basically he said things like um, secularism is to blame for the rot of society. It's to blame for drug addiction and mental illness. He blamed, quote, Bill Barr's quote, the homosexual movement for corrupting our government and our society. He says things like we I'm paraphrasing here. We at the church have to retake our rightful position at the head of society. We have to, he says at one point, reassemble the flock and charge back and retake the top of the hill. So this man is really uh, an extremist. He's a political extremist. He is a religious extremist. And those things pushed him to do things that were incredibly dishonest and damaging to the country. Yeah, I think you hit the nail right on the head. But there's a part that most people leave out. And if you speak to most people that worked in the government under the Trump administration, including Jared and Ivanka, just yeah. so you understand, right? Yeah. And what I'm going to say to you is probably a little shocking, but then you're going to spend a second and say, okay. yeah, that's probably true. Everyone that worked in the White House for Donald all thought the same thing, that Donald's a fucking dope. He's just an absolute fool. And what their hope was that they would be able to effectuate some personal goal that was important for them. Bill Barr's case, right? M bringing religion into government and controlling society yeah. the way he thought. And then he's looking at Trump, who's really, when I tell you, he's really stupid. This is a man that doesn't read. As a president, could you imagine all you're reading is news clips? All you're doing to obtain your information on how you're going to run this government is by watching Fox News or occasionally flipping through CNN or MSNBC in order to see what negative shit that they're saying about you. This is not a man who has the patience. He's ADD, so he doesn't have the, the patience to sit down and to read a memo. That's why he would tell everybody, give me the four or five bullet points. I could take it from there. My gut knows better than my generals. You understand where I'm going with this? So sure. all these people looked at him as the, as um, Malcolm Nance used to call him, the useful idiot that they could get right, in order to be able to effectuate their own goal. Jared Kushner, to open up his own hedge fund $3 billion <laughs> later with the Saudis, right? You understand? You understand? Yeah. And start well, breaking down each and every person, Bill Barr. You say Bill Barr had money. It does, it's more than, listen, when I yeah. went to work for Trump, I had two and a half times what Bill Barr had, and yet I still fell into the same trap, all right? So it's, it's, it's it's so interesting, Michael, because people do ask me who was using who in this bar Trump relationship. And my answer is it was mutual. They were mutually using one another. Um, Bill, what does Bill Barr get out of it? He gets to to chase after his culture warrior goals. And, you know, the money's not much of it, but but power, power, as you know, you saw people all around Donald Trump who's who were intoxicated by power, who lost their moral compass because of power. And I think Bill Barr, look, he was a, you're, when you're an attorney general, you hold almost unimaginable power. He had that experience 30 years ago and he saw a chance to get it back at the end of his career. But make no mistake, Donald Trump was using Bill Barr too. And this yeah. is all about the Mueller investigation because let's remember, Bill Barr wrote what, I, what we all call the audition memo. This is in June mm -hmm. of 2018, okay? <laughs> right. The Mueller investigation is at its peak. People are getting indicted, Manafort, Stone, Flynn, whatever. Uh, Trump is terrified of this thing. And it's 100% clear Jeff Sessions is a goner 
three or four months hence at the midterm 2018 elections, Trump is by this point calling him a coward in public and all of this. And so the AG's job is open. What does Bill Barr do? He writes up a single spaced 19 page memo that says, and I quote, that Mueller's theory of obstruction of justice is, quote, fatally misconceived, fatally misconceived, fatally meaning dead, misconceived meaning wrong, right? Now, Bill Barr, this is one of his classic lies, claims, oh, no, I just did that as a sort of academic scholarly piece. Uh, I didn't have any intention to you know, try to audition for the job. Well, guess what? He sends it into DOJ. It makes its way to Donald Trump's desk. And Michael, you know Donald Trump personally. I don't. But the reporting has since been what any common sense person would surmise. Donald Trump sees this memo and goes, ding, ding, ding. That's That's my my guy. guy. There we go. Right. The one thing I want is someone who's going to make sure that Mueller does me no harm. So Bill Barr delivered exactly as advertised. Donald Trump put Bill Barr in that position and let Bill Barr advance his own extremist views as well. Yeah. And it got so bad that you may remember that there was a judge that slammed slammed Bill Barr, right? Two of them. And ordered the review, right, two. And ordered the review of the Mueller, you know, report uh, and all of the deletions in it. They wanted an unredacted report so that they could make a determination exactly what they thought was going on here. Um, That's another thing, by the way, that's happened since my book came out that I feel very vindicated by. I made the decision to call him a liar. And now we've had multiple federal judges, members of Congress, uh, you know, elected officials who have come out and said he lied. Um, And if you go, there's a couple of the judges in DC, they use, if you go to Google and just type in liar synonym, all of those words are what the judges use, disingenuous, questionable, uh, veracity. You know, they use nice judge speak, but luckily I'm not a judge. I don't wear a robe, so I don't don't have to be polite. Yeah, me neither. But I remember it when- (laughs) I'm not going to go as crazy. I'm not going to be as extreme as you, Mike. I'll fall somewhere between a judge and you on the politeness scale. That's because your your parents had control over you when you were a child. (laughs) But but let me, you know, but you remember that? There was like that 23-page report by Judge Reggie um, Walton who turned around and basically, you know, you're right. He said nice things. Oh, it was a, it was like a spin. You know, it was a massive spin report put yeah. out by Bill Barr in order to, you know, praise Trump. And right. it raised all of these crazy issues and doubts about whether the Justice Department can actually, you know, operate yes. properly and legitimately. Um, yeah. I mean, and, I and- can't remember in my lifetime, yeah. I can't remember another time that I ever saw the multitude of these type of comments coming from justices, right? U.S. You know, district court judges, judges. Yeah. Um, about somebody, including whether it's the attorney general of the United States or the president himself. Your instinct is exactly right there. And it's a really important point. It is so rare, so rare to see federal judges, district court, court of appeals, Supreme Court explicitly question the credibility of the Justice Department. I mean, I was there eight and a half years. Then I went to work for the state for five. But I was there eight and a half years. I cannot remember any example of any judge, thousands and thousands of cases, you know, not just me, but all my colleagues of a judge. There was one time when one of my colleagues, a fellow AUSA, a judge sort of dropped a footnote saying, I have some questions about the representations this person made. And that was an enormous scandal. That person was was, you know, humiliated and disgraced. And but compare that to now having multiple federal judges and other authorities say not just some, you know, person like me, I was just on the line, but the attorney general 
has misled right. us, has been disingenuous, that one of the judges said something like, it causes me to question whether Barr intentionally distorted the Mueller report to protect Donald Trump. I mean, that is not just extreme, that is unheard of. Did any judge ever say anything like that about going back in time? Jeff Sessions. I mean, there's a lot to criticize about Jeff Sessions, but I don't No judge when he was AG questioned his credibility that I can recall. Loretta Lynch, Eric Holder, Michael Mukasey, John Ashcroft, on back down the line. This is really unusual, extraordinary stuff. Yeah, it is. The only the only judge I could think of um, who I think was going back to like 2014, around that time period, would be Judge Jed, Ray, uh, Jed S. Yeah. Rakoff. I know Judge Right Rakoff, here sure. in Southern mm-hmm. District. Phenomenal, phenomenal guy. And a man, truly a man of integrity. It's exactly what I would want to see from every judge. Certainly not like the judge that I had, this William H. Pauley the third, right? But he, he rests in peace. A, um, whatever. Uh, <laughs> oh, my, on, my, my, my point. My point is, you know, he puts out a book which ended up really spinning heads. Why the innocent plead guilty and the guilty yeah. go free, right? And other paradoxes of our broken legal system. Um, yeah, it's definitely. I remember reading it while I was in prison, and I remember saying to myself, "Oh my God! I mean, this is exactly." what the Southern District, this is the playbook that his own courthouse, 500 Pearl Street, did to me. And I just thought that it was a real eye-opener. And I wish that I had read that book prior to um, dealing with guys like Tom McKay and Nick Ruse and Andrea Griswold and the rest of those animals. I really do. (laughs) So let me just just say a couple of things. Uh, Judge Rakoff's an outspoken judge. He, you know, like you say, he speaks his mind far more than others. I, I haven't read that book, but he's written articles along those lines. I agree with some of it. I disagree. I actually use it in my class. I teach. I disagree with parts of it. Um, I do have to take exception to your calling uh, those prosecutors. So I don't really know personally animals. animals. I know it's Michael being Michael, but, you know, I, I know people around that case who, who, I, who I will defend their integrity. Um, but we can disagree on that. That's fine. Judge Pauly was a very tough judge. I had dozens of cases in front of him. He was a tough sentencer. Uh, he was tough on defendants. He could be abrasive in the courtroom. He did, as I noted, he passed away, I think about a year ago, um, which is sad. And I, 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 you know, I, I condolences to his family. Um, I know, but I did know, and I, you know, when he passed away, his New York times obituary, you were in the first line. And I, I kind of think it's a, Interesting. Could you imagine the guy, right? Could you imagine the guy sits oh, on the bench for like 25, he's, 30 he's years spinning and all that he and, and yeah. all he could they could talk about is his wonderful sentencing of a guy who paid a porn star to pull the president's mushroom pecker. It, it, right. It and made, at the end yeah. of the day. Yeah, it, it would have made Judge Pauly. It would have infuriated him because he did have a long Good. and distinguished career. Oh, and real distinguished. Half of his, yeah. half of his uh, obituary was about your case. But it's sort of a, yeah. to me. I thought it was a, a telling look at the way. We are as is, you know, someone can have this long career and there's one sensational case and that's all you'll be remembered for. But that's that's a reality of life, I guess. Yeah. And we're going to disagree because anybody that threatens somebody's wife. Right. In order to get them to plead guilty, as far as I'm concerned, is an animal. Because I always say this and I've said this to you in private when we yeah, were we've to, we've together about like on set yeah. at CNN and dot, dot, yeah. dot, where I turn and said, if I put a gun next to your loved one's head, I can get you to do anything that I want. And that's exactly what they did. And that's just yeah. not proper. And it's not the way our system's supposed to work. But let me just move on for a quick second here, because the January 6th committee did the unprecedented thing and recently subpoenaed five members of the House. Right. More 
Moron yep. McCarthy, Jim the Pedophile Jordan, Mo the it's, Schmuck Brooks. I mean, that whole group of assholes. But it's largely symbolic. Do you not agree with that? Because they can't enforce these subpoenas. First of all, it, yeah. how come they can't? And why can't they figure out how to do something? My feeling, my feeling is if you get subpoenaed and you choose not to show up, you should lose your seat. It is entirely symbolic uh, for months and months and months, probably on this podcast with you. I've been saying they need to subpoena McCarthy, Jordan, et cetera, even though they're members of Congress. And I know there's special rules for other members of Congress. These folks were central players. I mean, Kevin McCarthy was right in the middle of it, of January 6th. He had key conversations with Donald Trump. Jim Jordan spoke with Donald Trump on January 6th. Mo Brooks spoke at the rally. Uh, Scott Perry was trying to get into DO, you know, get DOJ on board. What the committee did was they served those subpoenas, wonderful, but a month ago, you know, a month before these hearings start, when yep. they had to know darn well, I wrote a piece about this, they have to know darn well that it was way too late for them to enforce these subpoenas. And so now we're seeing McCarthy and Jim Jordan sort of brush them off with no consequence. What, how could they enforce their subpoenas? There's really two things they could do, but the, the time has run out as a practical matter on both of them. One, they could go to a federal judge and bring a lawsuit essentially and ask the judge to order these people to testify. And then if they don't, they can be held in real contempt, not contempt of Congress, contempt of court and thrown in jail. That takes months and months and months. They they knew, had, The committee had to know full well when they served these subpoenas in, I think it was April or maybe it was, uh, yeah, it was April that they would never be able, uh, I'm sorry, it was May, I believe. They would never be able to get these enforced by the hearings which start next week. Um, the other thing they can do is hold the uh, hold the people in contempt, as they did with Steve Bannon and Mark Meadows and, the, and those others, and send it over to DOJ for prosecution. But that would never happen before June either. And by the way, I should note, DOJ, yes, they charged Bannon with criminal contempt. They pretty clearly at this point are not going to charge Mark Meadows. They've had that referral for six plus months or Scavino or Navarro. Why? why? I think they're wrong. Let me say that at the outset. I think they're too timid. I think they don't want, I think Merrick Garland does not want a political fight. Um, there is a difference between being non-political, which the attorney general should be, and bending over backwards to avoid doing anything that's political, even if it's right and necessary. And I think that's where Garland has gone off the rails. He doesn't want a, tri a, a messy, ugly legal fight. It's a more complicated case with, with Meadows and Scavino and Navarro because they were in the Why? White House and executive because executive Why? privilege arguments, because they'll they'll have a better look. Steve Bannon has no then, executive then no problem. Argument. Then no problem. Let them claim I agree. executive privilege at the time. But you and I agree. And then let and let uh, let a court then make a determination. Because I remember yep. listening to um, Chairman Thompson, Benny Thompson, yep. when yep. he turned around and he said, "We urge our colleagues to comply with the law because yep. it is. If if you get subpoenaed, you're showing up, right?" Do their You're, patriotic duty. They yeah. are paid by the American people, not by Donald Trump. And I don't give a shit about their invitations to Mar-a-Lago. They have to do their patriotic <laughs> do. duty and cooperate with yeah. their investigation, right, as hundreds of other witnesses have already done. I mean, that's the bottom line. But they're above the law. Do you understand? That's the problem with Donald Trump. He believes he's above the law and all of his little sycophantic jerk offs that are running around him. Right. Ding, 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 ding. They're all sitting there running around Donald. And what are they doing? They're pretending that they're Donald also, that they don't have to comply with anything. Yeah. Well, and let me remind you, 
McCarthy and Jordan and others at first, but very boldly said, we have nothing to hide at all. We're happy. Well, then they got they got these subpoenas and they started crawling into their holes. Um, and, you know, look, primary blame needs to sit with the people who are defying these subpoenas for the reasons you state. There's a patriot, a patriotic duty, a civic duty. They're eyewitnesses. Right. A subpoena, by the way. You know, there's this negative connotation around the word subpoena. And sometimes, you know, you don't want to get subpoenaed. But technically, all it is, it's not an accusation. It's a request for information. You say you're a witness. Same thing as if you were standing on the street corner and you saw a car accident. Well, you you might get subpoenaed because you have relevant information. And the fact that they're hiding, uh, to me, tells me some combination of they're afraid of testifying. They're afraid of maybe what they did or who they'd have to testify about. And and I think they do remain beholden to, to Trump. I mean, let's remember Kevin McCarthy. Kevin McCarthy said publicly, I think it was a week after January 6th, Donald Trump holds some responsibility for what happened. And the most interesting single thing to me is McCarthy. There's a recording that we've all since heard where McCarthy is saying, Donald Trump acknowledged to me, Kevin McCarthy, that he has some responsibility for that capital attack. Now, that's a really interesting and important piece of evidence. If I'm a prosecutor, I would certainly want to talk to Kevin McCarthy about that. The January 6th committee is going to have various end runs that won't be available to uh, in a criminal court because they're not bound by rules of hearsay and that kind of thing. So they can just play the tape of McCarthy saying what he said. Um, and I think they will do that. But you're right. It's these people, ju- they, it's they should be testified. It's just not the same thing. Yep. It's not yep. the same thing. And I, you know, when I sit... I just came back from the Hamptons. A friend of mine had us out to their house. It was nice. We had a little birthday party for another friend. Was it P. Uh, Diddy? That was out there. It was not P. Diddy. Um, you know, and one of the things that people constantly want to talk to me about, and honestly, sometimes, you know, if I have a weekend or like this long Memorial Day weekend, yep. um, you, you really don't want to talk politics. I almost don't even want to turn Amen. the television on <laughs> simply because it just doesn't end. And you start and the first question people ask is how come Mark Meadows is not in jail? Yeah. How come Dan Scavino has not been prosecuted for not complying? How come Matt Gates after what is it, a year and a half already that yeah. that pedophile, right? You have the guy Greenberg who's already testified that he <clears throat> was party to this. You have the Venmo accounts. You have everything that you need. And yet, where's the action? What's, so, go, what's going on? I wrote, so my a, I wrote point a piece is, about this last week about Gates, and I can give you my view on that. But yeah. I would love it. Keep going. Yeah. So the timing here is starting to cause me to scratch my head a little bit because I agree with you. Look, they have Joel Greenberg. Let's be clear. He, by all indications are he's cooperating. This guy is from a prosecutor's perspective, maybe the worst single cooperating witness I've ever seen. I mean, Michael, I did cases where my star witness was a murderer, multiple murderer, mob guy, you know, I did mob cases. So I, I put murderers on the stand. You can do that because there's ways you can corroborate their testimony. I've had plenty of cases where juries have convicted based largely on testimony of murderers. But Joel Greenberg, the guy is a a pedophile. He is admitted. He has pled guilty to sex trafficking of minors. And worse than that, he has now admitted in his court uh, proceedings that he in a totally separate area, he had there was some teacher who was going to challenge Joel Greenberg for a local office in Florida. And Joel Greenberg accused that teacher of being a pedophile, of having sex with students. And Greenberg has now admitted that he lied. He made that up. Now, that's really bad for prosecutors, because if he's going to testify about Gates, he likely will say the same thing about Matt Gates. I mean, well, you lied about one guy being a pedophile. But let me say this. 
I still do think that they have enough backup for Joel Greenberg. The Ven- you referenced the Venmo record. They have other witnesses. They have the ex-girlfriend. The text, and the emails, the text messages, and so on. The timing is really getting to be questionable. This DOJ, one thing that's clear is they move very, very slowly. Now, I, I come from the SDNY. I move quickly. But Greenberg pled guilty over a year ago. And I know prosecutor people say, well, they want to make sure they have everything locked down. Okay, yes. But a year is more than enough time. If, if if I was supervising at the U.S. attorney's office and someone who was running the Gates case came to me and said, well, we're still working, I would say, OK, look, six months in, I would have said, you got to either fish or cut bait here. Let's do this. Um, the weird thing that happened or the interesting thing that happened is the judge on Joel Greenberg's case a couple weeks ago um, said so there was a sentencing date. Now, typically with cooperators, those sentencing dates get pushed all the way to the end until after they've testified at trials. It can be months. It can be years. I've had guys testified, uh, excuse me, sentenced years after they cooperated. This judge said, I'm not willing to postpone his sentencing, Joel Greenberg's sentencing anymore, unless you prosecutors can show me extraordinary circumstances, quote unquote. Prosecutors put in a brief under seal. We didn't see it. And the judge said, OK, you've satisfied me. So that can mean one of two things. That could mean scenario one, Joel Greenberg has given us prosecutors so much information. We have so much investigation to do that we just need more time. Maybe if, if it, you know, a year is a lot of time. And, and if, if it's taking them more than a year, they need to step on it a little bit. Scenario two, I think the less likely scenario, but possible is something's gone wrong and prosecutors don't know what to do. You know, process, cooperation blows up sometimes. It doesn't work out. And they're trying to figure out what to do. If that's the case, there's not going to be a charge in all likelihood. I guess there still could be. But on Matt Gates, I still do think Matt Gates will get indicted. But the amount of time it's taking and the other bumps that have, have come up have led me to think it's going to be a, it's going to be a tough case for DOJ. Yeah. And I'm not sure. I'm not sure what else you would actually need other than video of him with these underage girls talking about how they brought them over state lines and so on. Mm-hmm. You have all the documentary evidence, you know, yeah. and this is a this is the thing you and I have talked about many times. And we we disagree on this fundamentally. Sure. I don't believe that the job of a prosecutor is to convict prosecute the fucking case end of story (laughs) matt gates joe i don't care if joe greenberg lies about everything else in the world i don't care right now it's beautiful the sky is blue i don't give a shit if joe greenberg says it's gray it's snowing out in the middle of june i don't care it doesn't mean anything to me he's got venmo he's got receipt back of the money He has the text messages. You have the girls that were brought over underage. As far as I'm concerned, a first year out of school law student with no criminal experience prosecution at all should be able to take this case home. And somebody like Matt Gates should never be allowed to question someone like Katanji Brown Jackson, <laughs> right, who's, you know, being nominated at that time for Supreme Court. They, he should not be wearing the pin of a member of Congress. I mean, this That's is my the, opinion. This is the dilemma for DOJ. And there's a timing dilemma here because DOJ has this longstanding policy that they will not indict a big political case or do something like search, you know, Michael Cohen or whoever's office, something that's obviously going to have political implications within either 60 or 90 days of an election, different, oddly, half of us think it's 60, half of us think it's 90, whatever. Uh, But 90 days out from this midterm would be early August. And so if they're going to indict Matt Gates, it's either going to be 
be by or before between now and early August or after the midterms, which is really getting down the line on the flip side. It, and I've been in this situation. If you're a prosecutor and you know or you think it's very likely you're going to be indicting an elected official, don't you have a duty to announce that as quickly as humanly possible so the person doesn't stand for re-election in the primary, in the general? Don't you owe it to the American public? Or in my case, I dealt with this in New Jersey. We had we had an instance where a member of the assembly here, we knew we were going to charge and we were coming up on the deadline day for primaries. And so we sort of expedited it and made sure we got the case out. He ended up pleading guilty uh, before primary. So they're sort of in a timing squeeze. The other thing is that you touch on that that is right as a matter of strategy is as a prosecutor, whenever you have a cooperator, especially a vile cooperator like Joel Greenberg, you never want to have to argue to the jury, you should believe this is true because Joel Greenberg said so. You want to argue, you you know this is true because the Venmo records say so, because the recordings say so, because other more reliable witnesses say so. And what Joel Greenberg did is he came in here and he explained it for you in a way that only an insider could. He gave you the context. He tied it all together. But really, the stars of the case are the documents and the tapes and that kind of thing. Greenberg's just sort of there to give, you know, that's the better way to pitch a case. But you got to have that other proof. But yeah, a year is, is look, uh, it's just too long. And um and people are getting tired and we're getting yep. that whole, but going right back into Trump fatigue, you know, and it's just like, oh, my God, enough already. When is somebody going to be held accountable for their dirty deeds? You know, and that's the whole thing. So let me ask you this, since we're talking about dirty deeds. How do you think it's going to go for Mark Meadows with all that the January 6th yeah. committee now has on him? I mean, because there's critical testimony now coming from Cassidy Hutchinson, right? Yeah. His former aide. And I knew I knew Cassidy. Oh. I mean, where Hutchinson covered new ground in her recent deposition with the, you know, with the committee. Would you do me a favor and expand on that for my okay. listeners? I have I have a visual aid that happens to be three feet away from me that I'm going to grab in a second. OK, it's a it's yes. a coincidence. Mark Meadows, the referral on Mark Meadows was sent over to DOJ. So, so let's step back here. Mark Meadows gets a subpoena from the January 6th committee. Initially, he complies. He gives them these texts uh, and other information. 2,319 right. to be exact. Then, for, for reasons that we don't exactly know, he does a 180. He has a complete change of heart, and he says, I'm out. I'm not cooperating anymore. The January 6th committee then holds him in contempt. The full House of Representatives holds him in contempt. And on I think it's December 14th, sends the case over to DOJ for potential prosecution. Now, here's how long that has been. I have a whiteboard. Hold on. <laughs> where I was on CNN once and I wanted to make the point of how long DOJ was taking to decide on Mark Meadows. And so I wrote here Meadows, oh, December 14th. I was right. You know, arrow question mark. 51 days. Well, guess what? Now we are 180 some days. Um, and by the way, it took them 22 days or 21 days to indict Steve Bannon. So yeah, it, it took them 48 clear. hours. To, it took them 48 hours to get me <laughs> to indict you. Okay. Right. <laughs> right. But I mean, an example that DOJ is capable of moving quickly. So it's now become all but clear that DOJ does not intend to indict Mark Meadows for contempt. And I think that's a shame because the message sent by that is we're not going to back up Congress on contempt charges, unless it is the most over the top, indefensible case like Steve Bannon. And I think where this DOJ is sort of pegging its its radar is we'll take on the absolute slam dunk cases, but anything above slam dunk, they get really uh, pretty shy about.
What's not a slam dunk here? You have 2,319 text messages that shows that they were working behind the scenes to overthrow the government. I mean, well, I'm not really sure what more that you can do, but I want to I want to ask you this instead then. Yeah. Because the January 6th committee is now gearing up for the televised hearings, which right. I'm sure you're going to be busy as the, you know, as a commentator there. Sure. They've interviewed over a thousand witnesses and they have Tons and tons of evidence. Do you think that the hearings will have any effect on the public at large? And what about Republicans? Do you think that they're even interested in the facts with regard to the coup? Because my personal feeling on this is that those people that despise Trump are going to be watching, not changing their mind. They're guilty. They're all guilty. They all need to go to jail. And the Republicans, the Trump sycophant follower and so on, they may or may not watch it. And they don't really care what's said about any of them. They're not guilty of anything. Donald's the greatest. Yeah. So first of all, I do think it's important for the historical record that this be done. Um, and, and sort of perversely, um, it seems like the committee is ahead of the Justice Department on their investigation. We know the Justice Department has asked the committee, hey, guys, can we get your transcripts? Usually it's the opposite. Usually DOJ leads the way. Um, are they going to change minds? Um, look, there's a, there is a, a big swath of people who believe that the January 6th attack was the culmination of an, an attempted coup. I am in that camp. I think you are, too, uh, who want to get all the details. There is a big swath of people who are just... Trump all day, every day and don't care and will never change your mind. But I do believe there are people in the middle. Uh, I think there are Republicans, moderate Republicans, uh, uh, you know, rational minded Republicans and Democrats alike who want to know exactly what happened and exactly who's to blame. But a lot of this will turn on how good a job the committee does in presenting their case. I mean, I think they've already, you know, look, they've come up with some really remarkable and damning revelations, pieces of evidence, the Meadows text being maybe number one on that list. Um, but they have a task to do here. They have to let the evidence speak for itself. I don't think people are going to care if Adam Schiff or or Zoe Lofgren make beautiful speeches. I think people are going to care what the Cassidy Hutchinsons, the actual witnesses say, what's in the actual documents. Um, I think they need to give us something new. One of the, one of the, you know, the committee well, has... Why do you need... Ellie, why do you need anything new? The information is so damning yeah. in the first no, place. No, I, I agree Just with go, you. I, you know, it's it's once you finish the car, you don't need to keep adding to it. The car is done. It's perfect. It's finished. It's flawless. Yeah. Leave it alone. I, now I go drive it. That's the point. I agree there's more than enough out there already to, to make clear who did what. But I think in terms of capturing public attention uh, and swaying public opinion, the reality is... People, you know, a lot of this is already out and there's a bit of a sort of and, you know, Trump has benefited from this throughout his his political career, which is the constant flow, the, the everyday revelations. Human beings do tend to get numb to that human. Be, you know, the, 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 the expression is boil the frog. Right. You don't realize. Um, I mean, I said about the Mueller. Here's one thing I said about the Mueller investigation. You remember there was sort of, you know, Michael Flynn got arrested. I don't remember the exact order, but every few weeks I said, imagine if we heard absolutely nothing from Robert Mueller radio silence. And then on one day he dropped his report and he indicted and arrested Manafort, Flynn, Stone, Papadopoulos, all down the line. That would have hit 20 times harder and probably, I think, would have taken down the presidency. But doing it in this incremental way. And so, and a lot of times yeah. prosecutors, investigators can't control that. That's just the nature of we yeah, have a first drip, amendment, drip, right? Drip. And, and 
Yeah, we, but, but, you know, we have an, an active media as we should and people talk and we learn things quickly nowadays. Um, but Donald Trump has ultimately sort of, I think, benefited from that because of that numbing effect. Yeah. He, he definitely has, we call it, right, Trump fatigue, and we're all just yeah. tired of the drip, drip, drip. And I agree with you. They should have done it in one big, gigantic swoop. But, yeah. you know, the, the part that bothers me the most is, you know, you have years, years worth of testimony. Um, I mean, if you take the thousand people, you multiply, usually they're like six to eight hours. I mean, just yeah. do the math. You're talking between six to 8,000 hours. That's yeah. like two plus years of testimony every second, 24 <laughs> seven, right? For two straight years. And people I feel bad have for those to put that into- It's a lot to go through. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I feel bad for America, to be very yeah, honest with you. True. But the problem that I see, again, goes right back to Merrick Garland. You know, they, I, I, I am a firm believer the buck stops here. He wanted to take on the position. He needs to, everything is fucked up. You want to hear something that's crazy, Ellie? How about this one? So I put in a FOIA request because I am certain that there's information they won't even give to me, right, that would turn around and it would prove exactly what the point of my book is, which, uh, again, I forensically dissect, which is that Trump, Bill Barr, uh, and so many others all the way down the line from Jeffrey Berman all the way to Kazami, you name it, they were all in on the unconstitutional remand. And as well, you know, going back to the original raid on my home hotel, my law office, et cetera, yeah. I believe that Trump was involved in it from day number one. So they write back that there are no, there is no documents pursuant to your FOIA request, um, you know, that contain the search information. We then hired a guy, Mark Zaid, who's a, you know, know. a lawyer, and sure. he does this. He's a great guy uh, who does this for a living. We received back about 10 days ago, this 486,681 emails uh, or documents and so on. But because it's so many, the most that we can do is 500 documents a month in order to turn <laughs> over to you. Which, so, by the way, in case people are thinking, that's 92 years. I was going to say, right, so if you live to be 180, get you'll get them all, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I would something like that. And that's the problem. The problem is the system is designed to frustrate people like myself, people yeah. who want to get to the bottom. And that includes our own government. We frustrate our own government with these bullshit rules and regs. I say Merrick Garland either has to step up, start indictments now, and I don't care about this 30, 60, 90, 180 day rule. It means nothing to me. It means nothing to me. I want to know the facts. I want to know the fact that they started this thing over a year ago. And yeah. I and it's they don't they should not be entitled to sit on it for years. Because as the defendant it destroys you, right. not just destroys you emotionally, but financially makes mm -hmm. you into, you know, and, and what if hypothetically, like I constantly do, I declare my innocence. Yeah, I paid Stormy Daniels. Did I pay Karen McDougal? No, I did not. Did I plead guilty to Karen McDougal? Yes, I did. But mm -hmm. who paid her? David Pecker and AMI. And not only was it part of my conviction, I was also fined for it, which I had to pay. But you know what? I, I don't want to talk about me. I'm, I use my case not to talk about me, but to show you just how disgusting 
right, that the Department of Justice under the Trump administration had become and what happens when, again, you weaponize the Justice Department with a willing and complicit attorney general. But let me ask you this then, Ali, because you tweeted something about what happened with law enforcement in Texas yeah. during the most recent school oh. shooting and how it was a travesty. Now, from what I can yeah. see, there was a cover-up. And in general, the situation with police on the ground engendered a terrible series of mistakes. What's your take on it? And again, I want to be clear about this. I am pro-law enforcement. Do I think mistake had? I just want to know what happened because all you keep seeing is the timeline, the timeline, the timeline. And I'm actually a little bit confused about it. So I too am pro-law enforcement. I worked side by side with, with feds, states, local cops for 14 years and count many of them among my closest friends. But I've talked to law enforcement and everyone I've talked to agrees what we saw in Texas was an absolute disgrace uh, and shameful on a couple levels. Look, number one, we don't we still don't know all the facts. DOJ is now going to dig in and give us a full forensic report. That's absolutely the right and necessary move. So we will get the TikTok minute by minute and we need that second by second. But we know for sure there was a hesitation to go into that room. We know for sure that there was an absolute confusion about who was in charge, what protocols they were following. And here's what we know for sure. The way that law enforcement, Texas law enforcement, handled the the dissemination of information to the public, telling the public what had happened was an utter disgrace. They were not at all transparent. They were inconsistent. They gave out information that turned out to be false. They were combative and arrogant towards the public. Um, And the families absolutely do not deserve that. So look, I am always very reluctant to go back in and sort of roll the film and, and, you know, sort of criticize cops for decisions they make on the spot, but cops can be wrong. And by all appearances, these cops were unimaginably wrong, timid, and, um, and at the cost of, of an unthinkable cost of, of human lives of children. So let's get all the facts uh, but the indications about the delay are really disturbing. And the way that they handled Texas law enforcement handled their communications with the public um, are, are, are is really disgraceful. So this brings up another question then, right? Gun laws, gun safety. Yep. Now, some say what you need to do is strike while the iron is hot and push Republicans now while the public is angry. And we all have a right to be angry. But Even with our anger, what's the likelihood in your mind that Republicans will change their tune and actually enact any common sense gun laws? I am not anti-Second Amendment. I used to carry two firearms, an ankle and on the hip, and Mm. I was licensed to carry in the city, concealed in the city of New York, a Mm. difficult license to have gotten, which, of course, I lost being a felon because of Trump, again, getting his pecker pulled. But putting all that aside, what's your opinion on that? Um, I think the chances of Republicans getting on board with meaningful gun reform are slim to none. I think there's a slight, a slightly better chance they get on board with some very, very incremental gun reform. It's just, look, the, the, there's a lot of factors at play here. The NRA is very powerful. Um, but the biggest factor to me is just the passage of time. We've been through this before. We didn't do anything collectively as federally after Sandy Hook. We didn't do anything after there's been so many shootings. There was an inc- there was a time it's sadly I can't even remember, you know, two or three years ago when we had two shootings in very quick uh, succession. One was I think was at the Walmart. 
Um, and we were like, now's the moment. We've just had two of these within a week. Nothing happened. Everybody said, now we're going to do something. Maybe now, maybe now. It's just Charlie Brown and the football over and over again. And, you know, I think the question that every polit politician, elected official ought to be asked is, do you think an 18 year old with mental illness should be able to buy a semi-automatic assault rifle on the spot? And, and that's a simple answer. Yes or no. If the answer is no, then there needs to be legislation. If the answer is yes, OK, then you're a Second Amendment absolutist extremist. But at least you're being intellectually honest. But I think there's a lot of people who wouldn't be would have to answer that question with a straight face. Of course not but are still not willing to vote for any legislation. And Michael, I do want to I do want to sort of make sure people understand this. The Second Amendment is not unlimited. Justice Scalia said that, of course, he ended up going in favor of the broadest possible right. interpretation. But Justice Scalia wrote an opinion. The last one of the last major Supreme Court opinions on guns in the Second Amendment was this case Heller from 2008. He wrote this whole paragraph about how the Second Amendment does not mean that any person whatsoever can possess any firearm whatsoever for any reason whatsoever or in any manner whatsoever or something like that. And yet, despite that rhetoric, uh, he went on to sort of peg the meter all the way on the side of broadest possible Second Amendment. And politically, there just does not seem to be enough votes and enough will to get anything done. I hope that changes. I, I hope, you know, there's been reporting that McConnell and Cronin uh, Cornyn are are you know open to some possibility, but but we've we've done this dance before. Yeah, well, and one thing I want to also bring up is over the course of the Memorial Day weekend, and this is according to Gun Violence Archive, and I haven't gone into them as an institution, but they track shootings right in the United yeah. States. There were fourteen mass shootings in this country over the weekend. And they say that there's something like nine people were at, at least nine were killed, 60 were injured. This is not a joke anymore, yeah. where every single day we're looking at, I guess, how they determine mass shootings and so on, but whatever it is, 14 of them just over the course of a Memorial Day weekend. And that's yeah. really a problem. You know, it, I, I mean, it really is. But let me ask you this, because we'll do a little a quick speed round on sure. this question. Let's go. Right? Further the gun case, right, that the Supreme Court is going to be ruling on. Yep. Conservatives now have a, uh, a supermajority, and of course, thanks to Trump, right? And they're backed now by the gun lobbies, and the case itself, you know, challenges a New York law limiting concealed um, handgun yep. carry in public. Now, they want to repeal uh, the law that expands gun rights and at the same time kill Roe v. Wade in right. the— Look, in the face of all that's happening in this country right now, won't it further enrage the public and delegitimize the court? Well, we do have a six to three conservative Supreme Court now. That's that's the reality of the situation. I agree with you in the New York case, uh, New York City Rifle and Rifle Association against Bruin, B-R-U-E-N. I do think the court is very likely, probably by a six to three margin, to strike down that New York law that puts restrictions on firearm carry. And that will be another significant expansion of the Second Amendment. And of course, we've all seen the, the, the leaked Roe opinion. What I what my problem with the court is I have become a Supreme Court cynic, skeptic, nihilist, whatever you want to call it. I am just completely done with this fiction. And this goes both ways, by the way, liberal and conservative, that we're just calling balls and strikes, right? Umpires, just right down the middle. We take the law and we do this sort of magical calculation that real people can't understand. We discern the right answer. It has become eminently clear the last several years, but arguably dating back to Bush v. Gore, that both sides basically start with, how do I want this to come out? And then they do what mm -hmm. lawyers do. They backfill the analysis. I mean, 
you know, every lawyer has has books and knows how to use Westlaw. Any lawyer can backfill some analysis to get to whatever result they want. That's largely what lawyers do. And so I just I do not. I mean, look, and there's the stats show that the justices are remarkably predictable in terms of how they're going to come out. And if they were just calling balls and strikes, they would not be predictable. In fact, in some instances, the liberals are more predictable than the conservatives and the liberals are less likely to cross over and join conservatives than the other way around. So when Clarence Thomas, I mean, spare us Clarence Thomas, the guy has been out there in public lecturing us. We are not political. We are pure as the driven snow. And the only reason people doubt us is because the media and, and I mean, in the same speech, I think Clarence Thomas started talking about yep. we and they. We do this. The, yo, he was talking. He was complaining about protests at the homes of justices. Well, we don't do that. They do that. Who's the we and the they? I mean, look, Clarence Thomas needs to give it a rest. Clarence Thomas is probably the most ethically compromised, given that he should have been recusing himself for for on anything to do with January sixth. Nah, I don't know. I don't know about the most. Conduct. I mean, I, I you got Kavanaugh over there. Right. You know, well, he's he's no it's, prize it's either. It's hard to rank them. It's hard to rate them. And you know, Justice Sotomayor, I think it was very telling. And I and I'm generally speaking, I, I I'm an an admirer of Justice Sotomayor. She um during the last recess did a speech where she said something to the effect of you're gonna be really angry when you see what comes down this this coming term. And she referenced the Texas case, which was a different abortion case. But, you know, same idea as Dobbs, which is the case that's going to come down. And she said, you're going to really sort of hate what you see. And then she sort of backtrack a little bit. But that to me is very revealing. And Sotomayor is a candid person. How would she know? How would she be able to predict what was going to happen? How would she be able to predict that this audience would be unhappy unless she knew, as we all know, that they all just sort of go right to where's our policy bottom line? Where's our political bottom line? Backfill the analysis. It's six three at this point. Even if the liberals get Roberts, which has happened, right. you know, fairly frequently, still five four. You need Roberts if you're the liberal three. You need Roberts plus one. Who's it going to be? Alito, Kavanaugh, Gorsuch. I mean, you know, good um, luck. So that's just the reality where we're at. And let me just address another thing: the Supreme Court is not going to be expanded. I know it's a it's a it's a sort of goal yeah, and it's aspiration. A talk, it's, a, it's a bullshit talking point. It's not going to happen. Gonna happen. Yeah, it's not but gonna Ellie, happen. let me ask you this because the hour goes by yeah. real quickly here on <laughs> Mayor Culp. I have one last question sure. for you, right? Because Biden always calls himself the bridge president, but yet he hasn't formally announced that he's going to run in 2024. But by yeah. the way, something I talk about on Mayor Culp all the time, neither has Trump for that matter. So let's just you and I for a moment consider who else in both parties might run and who might actually have a chance of winning? So let's start with the so, Democrat. Yeah. So, OK, it's funny because I hosted for three hours on Sirius XM on Friday and I, po- I put this exact question to my guest, who is Scott Jennings, who, who's a CNN commentator, used to work for Mitch McConnell and he's a Republican. Um, and I put it to the callers and we got about a couple dozen calls, almost uniformity. And I said to each caller, tell me up front if you tend to vote Democratic or Republican. I think every caller except one on the Democratic side said, we do not want Joe Biden to run. And every Republican caller said, we do want Joe Biden to run. There was one Democratic caller said, I do want Joe Biden to run. But it was almost unanimous that Joe Biden running is bad for Democrats. Same for Kamala Harris, by the way. Agreed. Uh, Every caller, every Democratic caller said, she, if Biden's out, we do not want it to be her. Every Republican caller said, if Biden's out, please let it be her. Some of the name. And then I asked every Democratic caller, assume if it's not going to be Biden or Harris, who would you like to see it be as a Democrat? Who would you most fear as a Republican? Um, and the most common answers were centrist, 
Midwest or Southern governors, or in some instance, senators. There was some support for Amy Klobuchar. I heard the name Roy Cooper quite a bit, the Democratic governor of North Carolina. Gretchen Whitmer, um, the Democratic governor of Michigan. Those were the three names that I heard most often for who people would want to run, Democrats would want to run, and who Republicans would not want would not want to run. On the flip side, I think the overwhelming favorite of Republicans, if Trump doesn't run at this point, is Ron DeSantis. I think Democrats um, probably fear him running because he'd have a he'd have a good chance. I, I think by some calculations, he'd have a better chance than Trump would. Um, that was really, and maybe forgetting some, but that's really the only Republican name I heard other than. Trump for who who might run on that side. You know, all I can say is I hope that some better people, right, decide no more of, you know, the political, let's call it, you know, it's your turn, right? Yeah. Um, ideology. Uh, it's right. not anybody's turn. We, we need people to step up. We need younger people to start stepping up and actually, um, you know, taking control over this country. And yeah, I don't mind center right. I don't mind center left as long as that this far right fringe just goes away because they're destroying this country. But Ellie, let me thank you uh, for joining me today. As always, you know, you're a breath of fresh air um, <laughs> and you, you really, you bring it. So I want to thank you Michael. for that and look forward to seeing you soon, my friend. Always fun. Great talking to you. Thanks for having me. Be good. And now for today's mea culpa. Republicans, quick to forget they still have blood on their hands, secretly held a retreat last week at a posh resort on the Maryland shore hosted by the Heritage Foundation to game out tactics for a high-profile investigation of, can you guess? The Biden administration, assuming that they win the midterms. They want to hit the ground running and be ready the minute the new Congress is seated to begin impeachment hearings or investigations into Hunter Biden's laptop or tech companies with a bias towards the left. Really just anything to make Democrats look like the villains for a change. The GOP keeps reminding us that once they've regained power, they'll seek revenge. But revenge for what? Trying to protect democracy from the real villains? The coup plotters and the big liars from fucking Trump? What we've seen over these last few weeks is Republicans doing what they do best. Obstruct investigations in Uvalde. Obstruct investigations into the Capitol riots. Obstruct common sense measures to stop domestic terrorists. Like we're not one country, but just warring parties looking for a civil war do-over. We the people, and I'm speaking for myself here and decent people everywhere. We want to live and let live. I don't care if you're red, blue, or green. Most of us are not benefiting from the constant threat of gun violence at all. I mean, quite the opposite. But you know who is? The fear mongers, Fox News, the radical right. And now it's looking more and more like an average middle of the road. Republican lawmakers have jumped on the bandwagon too because fear has become synonymous with votes, money, and power. All the stuff that does absolutely fucking nothing to protect our kids from getting randomly gunned down. So we need to stay angry and not give an inch until something substantive has been done. 
We need to play the long game with gun safety, just like the Republicans did with abortion rights. And unlike unpopular anti-abortion legislation, we'd have the support of the American public because they are sick and tired, like all of us, of being told there is nothing that can be done about it. But if the fearmongers win in the midterms, they will never again transfer power because they will never lose another election. Elections will cease to be free and fair because elections will be largely a symbolic gesture to keep the people from revolting because the democracy has been stolen. And thanks for listening. Mea Culpa is brought to you by Audio Up, Midas Touch, and LSJ Media. And it's written and produced by Jimmy Jelinek. Executive producers are Jared Gustat, Jimmy Jelinek, myself, Michael Cohen, and Phil Alberstadt. Our editor is Lisa Orkin. It may be a new day politically, but nowadays the landscape is more confusing than ever. Donald Trump may have lost the battle for the presidency, but in many ways, Trumpism is winning the war on the state and local level. Mea Culpa is here to help guide you through the wilderness and keep you informed. And let's face it, we all want Trump, Rudy, and the rest of these seditious traitors to see justice. And folks, it's coming. So stay tuned as I guide you through the twists and turns of the criminal process that will ultimately see them behind bars. Mea culpa, nothing but the truth.